Welcome to our new feature, The World of Old Krypton. I'm Russ Burlingame, and I'm here today with a panel of super friends. Uh, why don't you gentlemen introduce yourselves? I'm John Wilson, and I read comics, and I podcast about them, and uh, I saw Krypton. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Taylor. I also read comics and am a huge Superman fan, but uh, not as big a Superman fan as my podcast co-host, Michael Bailey. Hey, everybody. I'm, as he just said, Michael Bailey. I write for the Superman homepage, and uh, I, I guess I have to say I read comics. Is this a confessional? I mean, is this kind of like <laughs> AA, but for Krypton? That could work. Oh, CA. Comics I, I, I will say, if you like or dislike what I do on podcasts, then it's all Michael and Jeffrey's fault. Because the first podcast that I was ever able to listen to more than like three episodes of without getting bored was From Crisis to Crisis. They're, uh, wow, they're, I hope it wasn't the first three episodes because we were not on where we are now yet. I think I started with the Death and Return episodes and then went okay. back to the beginning and gone through the whole thing. Wow, we we need to just renumber our episodes, Michael. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not renumbering crap. <laughs> I should point out that if you dislike what Michael and Jeffrey do on podcasts, that's also Michael and Jeffrey's fault. <laughs> but uh, we're here to t- talk about the the Krypton pilot, which if you're listening to this, it probably you you probably just watched it. If you are listening to this and have not watched it yet, then uh, don't 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 do that because we're going to spoil stuff and. That, that's bad. We'll start out with a quick rundown of what happened in the pilot, which actually is one of those things where this, this pilot, to me, did not ever feel slow. But when I break it down to just cold, hard facts, there's not a whole lot that happened. Uh, the episode begins with Val-El, Superman's great-great-grandfather, who is being executed for treason because he believes that there are aliens in the universe and that is apparently an affront to Rao, who is uh, – the, the Krypton at this point is a theocracy that's backed by the military. You move from his death straight into his grandson's uh, t- late teens, early 20s years. So uh, – or I guess 22 because they say, yeah, he's going to yes. be 23 soon and he'll, he'll be able to, to bond and things. But uh, he is – Essentially, a they call them rankless, which is essentially he lives in the slums. He doesn't have a uh, a house sigil. The House of L, the Superman logo, is forbidden. And he's essentially working at this dive bar, running scams. Uh, his father actually works for a one of the guilds, which is actually the people who are responsible for his grandfather's death. And Seg, uh, which is Superman's grandfather, is not super impressed by that. Uh, eventually, he comes into contact with Adam Strange, who, if you read comics, you probably know that Adam Strange is a dude from Earth who travels to the planet Ran via the Zeta Beam and is essentially a space hero in the vein of, like, Flash Gordon. And he, in this instance, has traveled not just through space but through time to warn Seg that someone has come to destroy Krypton and prevent the birth of Superman and that if Seg does not help him, that someone, Brainiac will succeed, and Superman will never be born. Along the way, while trying to prove or disprove this seemingly insane theory from a stranger, uh, Seg ends up inadvertently implicating his parents in some crimes that also get them executed. 
And that essentially is everything you need to know about the episode to understand the conversation that we're about to have. So first off, guys, uh, what did you guys think of the pilot? I, I saw this, or at least most of it, quite a while ago because they, they sent us like the first two-thirds of it before I did a set visit back in December. But I'm curious to hear from some people who are seeing it fresh. I, I, I want to jump in on this one. As soon as this was announced, I was not interested. I had no intention of watching it. I didn't follow anything to do with it. And I went ahead and watched this pilot completely fresh with zero expectations. And I gotta say, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit impressed. There are still some things about it that I'm not super excited about, but I am impressed with the episode and I am looking forward to watching the rest of the season. A big part of that is because the season is only 10 episodes, which I think is a really good decision. But another part of the reason is that it feels a lot like... Have any of you watched Inhumans? Yeah, I saw the first two episodes that came out in theater. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was canceled before it was even released. And I know that there, there were a lot of behind-the-scenes reasons for that. But ultimately, what it came down to was that they did not put enough time and effort and money into into this series. Like, costumes didn't fit. It was that bad as far as the technical side of things. They they had a, a, a potentially good story, but it was never going to go anywhere. And a lot of that did have to do with what was going on behind the scenes and what kind of a budget they were going to have. And I kind of felt like this runs into a similar issue. The upside is that it's on the Sci-Fi Channel instead of NBC, a network. So I I think that they can pull off 10 episodes and potentially have a a good series. They they could even get a second season because it's on the Sci-Fi Channel, and I think that that's a big part of what makes the difference. I was just going to say, one of the things that I did like is that they're, and again, part of this might be more evident because I was, like, I did a set visit, but uh, there are a lot of practical effects in this show. A lot of the things that you see in here that would have been CG in a lot of shows are practical elements that you can reach out and touch. Uh, I, You know, one of the, the big things that might not be immediately evident is the gigantic... Uh, statues of the founders of Kandor City, which uh, stand inside the Fortress of Solitude, are an actual thing that you can like walk up to and knock on the leg. And uh, so elements of that, I think, look better than something like Inhumans because it's they rely less on digital effects, which once the show starts to flounder and people realize, like, oh, we're probably not getting a second season – Reliance on digital effects means cutting corners. I um, I came to this show as a uh, very large fan of Man of Steel. And whenever this was first announced, that it was coming down the pike and it was a David Goyer project, it was either stated or at least implied enough that I came away from it believing that this was going to be a, a direct prelude or prequel to... Man of Steel that it was going to be like that Krypton just earlier in its history. And um, so I was very excited to see that. Uh, I One of the things I like about Superman comics is when they do stuff with Krypton. They do stuff with his, his parents and, and, and the, the history there. So as we're getting closer and realize, well, it's not really going to be a 
prelude to Man of Steel so much as, you know, something that sort of takes cues from Man of Steel and from other versions of Superman and does its own thing. Um, I was still looking forward to it. And so the daughter and I sat down to watch it, and I've seen this twice now. Um, and aside from a couple of storytelling choices that I thought were a little questionable, I did really rather enjoy it. Um, there were there were some good characters. There's pretty, you know some pretty solid acting. Um, I liked the casting choices for like the Zod family. They were really uh, intense actresses, and there's a lot of things that I liked. There were a few quibbles I had that I'll get into later, but I came away from this feeling pretty positive. And I did not know it was only going to go ten episodes. Uh, I, I like that TV seasons are shortening more because I feel that TV is focused more on telling a story that takes, you know, a year to tell rather than just cranking out, you know, six months worth of episodes. I don't, I, I think that the way TV is structured nowadays, making a smaller number of episodes that focuses the story is generally a better choice. And so I'm looking forward to this, this season. Yeah, that's a that's a very British way of doing television. Uh, I I only hope that we have learned from them and not let like a year go between series or seasons, however you want to say it. Because Game of Thrones, because then, then sometimes the actors look a little different and it's a little distracting. But uh, I, because of doing a weekly live show about Superman. Uh, you know, I, I've been following the development of the show since it was first announced. Uh, sometimes I wish that I didn't follow things so closely, but it's kind of my quote unquote job to do so. So, and at first I was just like, ah, oh, it's a, it, 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 it's a sci-fi show with a Superman coat of paint on it. I'll watch it, but I'm not really feeling it. And then they kind of restructured things. And they revealed that Brainiac was going to be a part of it, and that Adam Strange is going to be a part of it. And at one point, they were saying Hawk Girl. Uh, haven't seen her yet, but I'm holding out hope. Um, and then suddenly, it, it wasn't this. We're just going to tell a, a, a story from Krypton's past. It's something that actually is keyed into the present, and there's some drama here to be had from that. I was very impressed with this pilot. I, I think pilots these days are very different than they were 20, 30 years ago, where it just kind of is like a little mini movie, and it kind of sets up the, the goal of the series. This just more than, in addition to setting up the the overall plot, we really didn't get to the villain until the last like five minutes of this show. Most of it was setting up the world that it existed in and introducing us to the key players. I really liked that. Uh, I liked everybody in this. It was uh, it, it was it's 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 kind of funny that there's a lot of British colloquialisms in ancient Krypton, but you know, <laughs> well, uh, every single character has a British accent. They're all British. Yeah, but when he goes, I got to bounce. I'm just like, okay. Uh, <laughs> But but at the same time, I, I think that makes it for American audiences, quote unquote, foreign. So uh, I don't know how British audiences are going to react to it. It's just like great. Sejel is just a just a pub crawler essentially. But um, no, I really liked. I really I didn't have. I can't. 
John's going to point out some quibbles, and, 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 and I may agree with him, but from my standpoint, I just enjoyed the uh, the episode from beginning to end. I do have uh, a... Sorry, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, one thing that I can tell you is uh, I've seen the first five episodes, and I won't spoil anything except that there is a sequence in three or four where Adam Strange says, what do you expect me to do, just sit here with my thumb up my ass? And uh, one of the other characters is like, why would you do that? Um, so the, the colloquialisms kind of come and go as is convenient for the script. <laughs> yeah, because I was going to say, that, that there's there's a lot of really natural Earth slang in this. Not just British slang, but just, yeah. you know, someone's, I, I heard bullshit in there somewhere, something like that. And so it's, I thought it was an interesting choice to give them our colloquialisms, but then to hear that, they would then hear some of our quickalisms and not know what they were. That seems a bit uneven. But, you know, like you said, it's convenient for the script. Jeffrey, what were you saying? Oh, there were a few other things that I wanted to throw in there before we get into the specific episode, just about the way that the pilot set certain things up that I thought were really interesting. First off, it does borrow a lot from Man of Steel, which Goyer wrote as well, so... But at the same time, Man of Steel borrowed a lot from all aspects of Superman. Um, I, I, I did a huge piece on Movies.com about – it was a two-part piece about here's like 40 different things that Man of Steel used from past Superman things that I was able to catch. I'm sure there are other people who, who could catch even more, but uh, it, it, it borrowed a lot. Um, there – but it does not appear to be in the exact same universe of the DCEU and the Men of Steel. Um, yeah, Kryptonians appear to have a super long lifespan, and that's something that Men of Steel didn't really deal with, and that seems to be about normal. The crystals seem to be very much like what they did in Men of Steel, which of course borrows from all sorts of Superman, uh, especially the 1978 movie and, and from there on out. What I find most interesting is that there are different races, or at least skin colors, on Krypton. So for a society this old, I, I would expect that they would all sort of blend together. But maybe if different cities didn't have so much contact, maybe they would appear to be different when one takes over another. It, it, it really depends there. Or maybe they just choose genetically to keep different skin tones or hair colors. And, you know, it, it's not something that the show ever needs to address. I just really like that they, that they're going with this unicultural, multicultural side of looking at things. Because Krypton, after, you know, we, we saw in Man of Steel that it was 100,000 years old that uh, Kryptonians have existed on Krypton, the way that humans have existed on Earth for 0.1% of that amount of time. So uh, if they are going to have different races or skin colors or hair colors, that's something that they would probably have to choose. And again, this is... It's not something that they ever have to address on the show. I just really like that they go for it. Yeah, I think that, I mean, obviously the real practical reason is because representation is something that is important on television and, and in film right now. Uh, but I, I do think that you could easily hand wave any of that by saying, we see in this episode 
the Genesis Chamber and the idea that they essentially tailor-make their offspring. Right, and they could choose to tailor-make everybody to look almost exactly the same, Mm -hmm. and they don't go about that that way. And it's maybe easier from a casting standpoint to go ahead and, 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 and do it that way, but it doesn't matter to me because it comes out great in the story for me. I also think uh, it'll be interesting to see how the Genesis Chamber plays into the kind of grander scheme of things. I don't know about you guys, uh, and this goes directly into a thing from the episode, and we can kind of track back to other stuff later, but I got the very distinct impression that it's possible Seg might have made Lyta pregnant. Oh, I had not caught that. Just because they just... cut straight from the, okay. they they just cut they cut straight from the the Genesis Chamber scene where uh, Nissa says something along the lines of, "Isn't it so strange that our ancestors used to carry children in their wombs?" And then hard cut to Seg and Lyta in bed together, and Lyta saying, "You know, what's she like? What's she like?" And then they they go ahead and have sex. Yeah, I I don't know if they're going to go that direction with it. My honest uh, thought was that, well, this will kind of bleed into the episode, so we can get to that when we get to it. But uh, I I honestly think that uh, Jarrell will be either conceived or born in the series finale. Probably. That would be my guess, yeah. Jarrell being Superman's father, anybody out there who's listening, who has not paid that close attention. And therefore, Segel's son. Right. right. Uh, there are obviously some other characters in this series who have children who matter. Uh, Light Azad, it, it should be remembered, her son, Druzad, which is General Zod, is a contemporary of Jor-El, of Superman's father, not of Superman himself. And the only reason that he remains kind of young and vital enough to fight Superman is because he gets thrown into the Phantom Zone where time does not pass. And so... As you're watching the journey towards Jor-El being conceived, so too are you watching the journey towards General Zod being conceived. And the idea that these families are so bound together in the pilot, uh, but we know that eventually they're going to grow apart in a rather spectacular fashion is really interesting to watch. Yeah, I don't mean to jump so deeply into the meat of the episode, but the fact that uh, Segel, okay, here's here's what happens. His parents are killed because it's a superhero show, and you can't have the hero of the story without the parents dying because he has to be an orphan. And I think that the the fact that he is at, at odds with the mother Zod and in love with the daughter Zod means that he's going to end up killing the mother Zod, maybe at the end of season one or something like that. Which will put them at odds, and that's where the 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 desperation will be. Do Do you think it's possible that this show might end up being multi uh, multi generational, or rather, to say it another way, that they're going to do like time jumps between seasons? Just what you were talking about, we're like marching towards the conception of Jor and Drew. That it's just like that doesn't seem to really be very important to this story that we're seeing right now. Because even if they're conceived, well, the they're going to have to be born and then they're going to have to grow up and that's going to be many, many years before they have any sort of bearing on the story. I think Unless... that... 
unless after a season or two we jump to them being teenagers. My guess, to be honest with you, is that that's why specifically they chose to set it 200 years ago because it gives them the ability to not have to jump straight into that if they don't want to. I, I don't think I, – I, I suspect that if this show only goes a season or two, then as Jeffrey said, we will get the idea that these kids are coming in the finale, but that they won't play a role per se in the show itself. Whereas if if we end up with a show that runs for a while, then you run into the possibility of maybe doing a time jump like three or four seasons in to keep things fresh. I really – I don't see them, especially because the the cast on this is really good, and I think that there's, there's enough kind of meat between these characters that you're going to have some of that kind of CW-style drama between a bunch of young, beautiful people. Uh, I, I don't know that they're going to want to immediately go, okay, well, we're going to discard this cast and, and move towards, you know, the next generation. Yeah. Maybe I... the, uh, I'm sorry, Mike. No, go ahead. Just real quick. Maybe the, uh, conception of Jorah will be what makes the cape okay again. And then Superman will just start playing Johnny B. Good. There you go. Ironically, Mark McClure was in that picture. Uh, there you go. The um, I, I really hope that they don't time jump forward. And, and, and I, I, I would would I like to see a TV series about Jarrell and Drew Zod and you know Sejel not liking Drew Zod being around uh, uh, Jor because he doesn't trust Zod's family. Uh, and we are introduced to a Zod's father who is more charismatic than Zod. Uh, oh wait, this, that's Smallville. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> let, 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 let me let me back up a little bit. No, but uh, in all honesty, I, I think the idea of setting this 200 years before the destruction of Krypton uh, is probably the best way to go because it allows the people doing the show to kind of have a little more freedom to move. We know eventually that the the planet's going to be destroyed. But if you start bringing in Jor and Drew, then you've immediately put a clock on the show. Yeah. And I, I don't think that's what they're going for. Plus, why would you go... I mean, and shows do this, so th- weird things happen, but they went to the trouble to cast this show with these characters. And I think it would show a, a lack of faith in those decisions to a couple seasons down the road go, oh, we really need to age these people up and bring some kids in because the, yeah. the, that's what we need to do. Yeah, I, I think... I, I, I completely agree with Michael. That's exactly what I was basically about to give him a chance to talk, and so he spoke my mind. <laughs> uh, I, I do love the fact that, and again, I, I think that certain things are being... Certain decisions are being made for very specific reasons, and I, I love the fact that this is a, one of those rare shows that starts out with a statement of purpose. When you get that monologue at the beginning, it's not just, I'm the fastest man alive. Uh, it It is a direct statement made at the audience that, you know, our history is not how we died, it's how we lived. And that is very self-evidently something that people are talking about and people something that people are concerned about because for many people when this first got announced the question was why do i watch this when i know how it ends and 
I think the idea here is, you know, these words are a cosmic message in a bottle from Seg to Superman. And the answer is, you know, knowing that Krypton will one day explode, no more ruins Krypton than knowing that Titanic will sink. Or, you know, going a deeper level, knowing that every story you ever tell, the lead will one day die. Uh, and so I think that choosing to separate it a generation from Jor-El wasn't just a matter of setting up one day we'll get to Jor-El, but it was setting up this idea that everything interesting and important that happened on Krypton and all of their day-to-day struggles and their grand adventures don't all have to do with Cal. It's not all about you, Clark. (laughs) Except that it is, because Adam Strange shows up to say, if you don't do this, Superman won't be Superman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's. So I mean, it kind of is. That that is still the Doomsday Clock that's set up in the pilot. I'm I'm hoping that it's not a huge part of every single episode, but that that's the eventual goal. Because the re- what reason is there to watch Krypton unless you want to see Superman win? Well, I well, think that's speaking the, of- the the idea of the show is to answer that question. To be honest. Speaking of things that are inevitable, so you know we have Brainiac and we have Candor City. Yeah. So the idea that Brainiac is coming for the planet, and here we are taking place in Candor City. I mean, that's sort of a microcosm, or at least a more short-term situation, like Krypton blowing up. Anyone who's watching this who knows their their stories, and granted, that's not everybody. Right. Whenever Brainiac came into Smallville, I didn't know who he was. So there are definitely people watching this who don't know the story. But, you know, a lot of us know Brainiac is going to win this one. Yes, although I think that the the greater question becomes, if this Brainiac has come from the future, is this the moment that he wins this one? Or, you know, do we get another five seasons out of this before younger Brainiac shows up to collect the city? And yeah. if so, what's the scenario where they beat him once and can't figure out how to beat him the second time? Yeah, and and uh, since we're dealing with somebody who can time travel from Earth, e- even though, I mean, if you know anything about Adam Strange, Superman should not have any access to any of this information, but do you have Superman at some point show up? No. Uh, God, I hope not. Um, I hope not, but uh, it could happen. Well, anything is possible. I mean, but I, I think more to the point. If we're gonna if we're gonna conjecture about Brainiac and Candor, you could always say that Brainiac loses and he takes his Candor and goes home. Yeah, you know, it's just, it's just basically that's his consolation prize mm-hmm. uh, for losing out. But the, the thing that strikes me most about this show is how much I care about it, and and for. A lot of years, uh, you know, I've read a bunch of the fabulous world of Krypton stories that were in the back of Superman books in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I really liked John Byrne's World of Krypton miniseries. But to me, Krypton was always there to uh, blow up, uh, much like the Waynes were always there to get shot. And I realized recently that if the story is compelling enough, I'll want to hear about it anyways. So that's why I'm kind of excited about this. Not, 
<coughs> not because of all the like the cool Superman Easter eggs we're going to get, and not the inclusion of characters like Adam Strange, but I want them to make Krypton someplace that I truly care about so that I can mourn its passing. Yeah, and that's... I feel very similarly. Like, my Superman has always been the, you know, the from crisis to crisis Superman. And so, even for me, I, I cut off a little earlier than you guys do on your show because I kind of checked out during the big 2000 shakeup, and one of the big things that came out of the 2000 shakeup was a group of writers who were much more interested in Krypton as a kind of living, evolving thing than the the writers had been for the previous 10 years, which were basically looking at it under glass. And, and so when I look at a show like this, this is actually almost custom-made to be something I'm not super into. Uh, and so execution is really important because I feel like if if it hadn't been a show that I enjoyed, then it would have been easy for me to say, oh, well, that's because it was Krypton. Like, it's it's not really my Superman. Uh, one thing I did want to talk about a little bit uh, because I, I find it interesting in this, this pilot. Gender is kind of weird here uh, in the sense that, you know, when I spoke with uh, – Wallace Day, who plays Nyssa, she says that, you know, Krypton here is essentially gender fluid in the sense that it's not super important that any given person is female. In fact, you can kind of deduce that, that you know, the head of the military guild being a woman means that we are looking at a culture where women are more empowered than they are in most industrialized nations on Earth right now. Uh there's still the the kind of oddness of people who are you know there's arranged marriages and there's arranged children and all this kind of stuff but that's not an anti-feminist notion in this world because it's it's very much it's applicable to everybody mm-hmm. and so i'm i'm struck by like i you know recently i was rereading the burn one and essentially they were a little bit more kind of I guess stilted than us, but the the gender roles in especially in the first uh, in the first couple of issues of the World of Krypton mini that Byrne did were still like you know you had the sequence of the the one woman literally lamenting out loud that she doesn't understand why uh, there's no biological difference between us why am I treated differently etc. Uh, so the fact that we are in a version of Krypton that's removed from that is something that interests me, whether it's something that we're going to see there was an evolution at some point or whether it's just that this is the version that we have. Uh, so when I'm you not say sure. gender is fluid, you just mean that like culture is not so binary divided among gender right. roles. Okay. Right, yeah. Gender yeah, fluid it's, it's means something like different the... to me. <laughs> I was, was kind of figure where you were going with that. But yeah, um, I, I, I like that. I like that our head of the military is female, um, that, that there were no... I mean... Seg's mom was the one doing most of the action in in those scenes. There there didn't seem to be any thing that any particular character did that re- would not have been possible had they been the other gender. This is what happens when you take sex out of the equation. Except uh, that there still is sex because well, Seg is still... Me... Sorry. I, 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 I was making an overall point. Uh... 
Sorry. I apologize. Uh, the when you take sex as a means of procreation out of the culture, I think at that point the sexes become more equal because then there is never a point where the man can look at the woman and say, "Well, you are a vessel. You are here to to." continue the the line and you are nothing but a repository for my seed when you have a culture where marriages are arranged and children are you know genetically uh basically they're all test tube babies Mm -hmm. essentially and grown in the the genesis chamber which i just hope that there's a lot of phil collins music playing in there on a constant basis that's how i would do it but i can feel it <laughs> but uh, but there was a sting joke on uh, on Legends of Tomorrow this week. So, <laughs> well, yeah, because John Constantine's there, yeah. so obviously there's a sting joke. Uh, but no, but but when you take that out of the equation, then one recreational sex is one kind of forbidden. So there's like the 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 kind of the you know getting you know doing something that is verboten, but also it's not something that is there for the gratification of one or the, the other. It seems to be like if both people are really into it. Mm-hmm. So you have sex, you have intercourse, but it's not something that, I mean, it's, it's heresy, uh, to quote Michael Shannon in a really bad impersonation. So I, I, <laughs> I, I was kind of, I was kind of fascinated by that. You know, on one hand, you know, there are going to be people out there on Twitter saying, well, there's a woman at the head of the, the military and blah 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 and this is just you know more sjw and i hope not everyone's gay and whatever because that's what stupid people do but mm-hmm. on the other hand i i like it because it makes it does put everybody on an equal footing it doesn't matter that zod's mother is that is the, the 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 head of not only the military but this ultra like super Green Beret, you know, Rangers Force that mm-hmm. is the tip of the spear. And ju- just, I-, I think that the more interesting thing is, is that they've removed sex as an issue, but religion is still a driving force and an oppressive force. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's like they, they got one thing right, now they got to work on that other thing. Yeah, and there's nothing about that that has anything to do with humanity on Earth in 2018. <laughs> so that everybody's uh, 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 aware about that. However, I want to throw out there, I, I'm going to agree with Michael that the only real time to play that Airsats John Williams theme is while they're having sex. <laughs> I was really impressed that they used that. I know, too. I had no idea that was going to happen. That's one of those things that I I just know it's going to get blown on Twitter sometime between, you know, the time it stops airing on the East Coast and the time it starts airing on the West Coast. And I'm just going to be so annoyed by it because it's a nice little moment and it doesn't really spoil anything to know that it's coming, but it's, it's kind of like when they use that that musical cue in Justice League, I would have been so much happier not knowing it was coming. Yeah, if, if you think about it, the last couple of times that we heard it in the past maybe like 15 years or, if, yeah, about 15 years, is uh, when Christopher was on Smallville, we got a little bit of it on um, that Rosetta episode in season two. 
and we didn't hear it again anywhere else until Justice League. Didn't they use it in the Smallville finale, or am I missing? Yes, am I missing? They, they, they did they, they in the finale. Okay, I thought they when he did the shirt. Yeah, they, they essentially played like the last. <clears throat> excuse me, they played like the music that you know were in Superman and 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 Lex and Otis land in the prison. Uh, the prison yard to, you know, end credits music, essentially. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just... Okay, thing- I, I, I guess I forgot about that, but if it wasn't the music from Superman 3, then I really don't care, because that was <laughs> the best version. But but to me, I, I think it, it speaks to a kind of shift in how adapted versions of Superman are being treated now. Because, and this isn't me getting into anything, just hear me out, and then if you want to... I'll hear you out, then I'll get into it. Go ahead. Um, But when Man of Steel came along, they gave us a new theme. uh, A very good theme, I might add. It's not my favorite, but I do enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it it was a new Superman theme. Something to represent this new version. And it seems like in, in, in changing everything that they did with Justice League and bringing in Danny Elfman, who's like, you know, there's all the, who, who said in an interview, there's all these classic themes, you know, why aren't we using them? Uh, it seems that <clears throat> the Williams theme came around again, and it's, and it's this tug of war that, that basically started with Superman Returns, where they did Richard Donner fan fiction, essentially. And used that theme, and the film did not perform, so Hollywood executives do what Hollywood executives always do. is like, well, we're going to do the exact opposite of that. And then that gets kind of torn up by another segment of audiences, because to quote Bill Maxwell, we can't agree on how to make Kool-Aid. So... You 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 have like this give and take, but now it seems like you know the pendulum has stopped swinging, and you have it, but you have it at very specific times, usually with a dramatic shot of the S shield, mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of one. It's a cool little musical motif, but on the other hand, I think it represents something larger. That while I think it lets us know that, you know, between the cape and the fact that we're trying to save Superman, that Superman's a part of this, but this is this is somebody else's story. But every once in a while, you're going to get reminded of that. And I think the musical cue is part of that. Yeah, I also think that there's an element of acknowledging Donner's overall contribution to the the mythology in this, uh, seeing the yellow shield back on the back of the cape and mm-hmm. hearing that music are both things that kind of nudge you very gently in the direction of, like, what about that Superman, huh? What about that one? Yeah, and, and, and in fact, having the S in the back of the cape was one of the things that made me realize that it was not trying to be part of the same universe of Man of Steel and the DCEU because they don't do that anymore. They got the idea apparently from uh, Superman the Animated Series where it was too hard to animate the S on the cape, so they took the S off of the cape. And even though all the other versions other than that do have that, that was the reason that was given for taking that off. Which probably carries over, let's be honest, to Man of Steel, because having the... Uh, yes, the, the that, 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 that's what I meant. Okay, sorry. 
Oh no, just just having it with him even standing there, and and I mean doing it CG. I really don't know about that, but it had more more to do with uh, well, I think it looks better, and uh, you know it's been done before, and I tried to t- think about okay, when has that been done before? Superman the animated series and mm-hmm. Justice League and and all that. Anytime it's been animated, but uh, Zack Snyder honestly thought that it looked better to not have it. All right. Michael? Uh, I will say this also, that I, I'm not going to really get, on, 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 for me personally, I'm not saying this is how everyone should be, but personally, I'm not going to get too wrapped up on which version of Superman this is, because yeah. we've had so many in the past 10 years that, frankly, at this point, it, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> I, I, have, I have gone from wanting there to be one continuity to be going, oh, this is a new one. Let's see what it's got. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. To be honest with you, I I am happy that it's a new continuity. It does borrow from other continuities, and that's always a good thing, in my opinion. And so I'm I'm not trying to naysay anything. So when they put the S in the back of the on, on the back of the cape, that's when I know that this is not being the same universe as the Men of Steel, it's being in its own universe that is going to and will be borrowing from other versions of Superman, but that's great. All of that to me is outstanding. I'm content with that. One thing that I I will bring up, just because it stuck out at me, and I'm curious to see if you guys noticed slash cared slash thought about it. When they went to the Genesis Chamber and the name of their child was going to be Corvax. There are essentially two characters that, like, tickled the back of my brain. One was Carvax, which was a female who was one of Zod's minions in Man of Steel. And the other... Yeah, and and the other being Corzod, just because there was... Zod had an ancestor named Corzod at some point. And all I could think was... I never know with these things whether how closely they're paying attention to that kind of stuff. Like, are we to assume that Carvex is the child that Nissa will eventually have with somebody else because it's unlikely that she'll actually end up being the one to have a child with Seg? Or am I overthinking this? I think you're overthinking it, and I, I only say that because there were so many Kryptonians that had very specific names in Men of Steel. Like, the, there was a Jaxor who was played by the same actor who played the older clone of Lex Luthor in early season 10 of Smallville. There was a uh, Van M. Mm-hmm. Dev M? Dev M, no, thank you. I could not think of the name. Thank you. Dev M, uh, who specifically was the giant one that uh, went with Feora in the big Smallville sequence. Yeah. Which is funny, because Goyer also wrote the Man of Steel prequel comic in which Devem came to Earth 100,000 years ago trying to kill Supergirl. And that's a Maybe name just check a really to, popular uh, name. Yeah, I mean, to Maybe me, Devem is... DevM is the Daxamite Superman fights on the moon before it's destroyed and he's blown back to the present day and time and time again. Yeah. Or, or he's a guy that's Kryptonian but not Kryptonian because of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, you know, if you're gonna go, if you're gonna go all legion with this, I mean, you, you know, I, I, that's another thing that I'm always just gonna assume is a is an Easter egg for people that know, because the thing that stood out to me and the, this was a Bronze Age thing, and it's it's actually something I learned reading the original World of Krypton miniseries. Jor-El's father was named um, Jor-El. Uh, which is really weird. I didn't know they did juniors <laughs> on Krypton. So obviously this is a departure, and yeah. obviously they were not going to have Jor-El's father being named Jor-El because that would just confuse the heck out of everybody. Yeah. There's well, also I- another thing I want to throw out there about that is that the females in Krypton traditionally have been born with their own first name. Like let, 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 let's take Supergirl as as the example, uh, Kara. And then you have your father as the last name. So Kara Zor-El. Zor-El was her father. And when you get to Man of Steel, you um, okay, sorry, after that, when you get married, so Kara Zor-El, if Kara were to marry, let's say, I'm trying to think of a name, uh, Lorvan. I know that's her uncle, so let's... (laughs) <laughs> skip past that. Her name would become Caravan. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! I didn't even mean to make her name Caravan, <laughs> but anyway. And, and, and Laura Van yeah. would have been her grandfather, but that's right, family. right, exactly. Okay, so uh, so so then uh, when uh, a woman on Krypton gets married, then they take on the last name of the person that they married instead of their father's name as their last name. And when you got to Man of Steel, you specifically had. Uh, female characters like Feora with the last name that they were born with, Ol. So she was Feora Ol. She even said it in the actual movie. And when I interviewed the actress about that, she had no idea. So she was trying to... uh, Well, she wasn't trying to do anything, but uh, she was uh, explaining that, no, she was definitely not married... That was not part of her character, and so her name, Feora Ol, is the name that she was born with. So when you get to this series, you do have female characters with their first name, with a hyphenated last name, with the exception of Zod, of course, because they don't have hyphenations for mm-hmm. some reason, including in the end credits. Well, I believe... Yeah, having a having a woman born and taking her father's name as a surname, and then getting married and taking her husband's surname as a or her husband's name as a surname that always struck me as I don't know misogynist. So the fact that they are just it, going it to is. a more a more, for lack of a better word, Western slash American slash European way of doing it, just having everyone uses a surname of their family. It's your house mm-hmm. surname that just seems more you know even handed. Um, I did. When I heard Corvax, Lily looks over me and says, "Is that a person?" So I looked it up and I saw Carvax in the in the internet. Um, a, I'm pretty sure that on the show it did say Cor, not Carvax. So I hope that distinction is there. And B, if yeah. it's not, if they meant it to be the same name, I'm a little bit disheartened that they took a female character and made it male. Even if, even if it's just in a hologram description, that seems like a weird choice. But aren't you no, glad it, her name didn't turn out to be Carmax? That's true. 
But at the same uh, time, uh, th- th- this is a scientific, I mean, a science fiction universe with a science fiction world where if that's the way that they go about it traditionally and they've been doing it for hundreds of thousands of years, I still disagree with it. But if that's the way that they do it, there's really little that I can say about it. I honestly think that when it comes to David Goyer, that even though he's a fan of the Golden Age and the Silver Age just a little bit, I think that he honestly just didn't know. Another thing I will say about this, about the, the nomenclature of this, just to, to add even another layer of complexity to what we're talking about, uh, is that you joke about the Zod thing, but it seems to me, based on Jane Azad, who originally was named Allura Zod, and they changed it because they thought that that would create confusion with Allura. Um, but uh, Jane Azad, uh, Light Azad, Darren Vex, and Nissa Vex, none of those gilded, ranked folk have hyphenated names uh, at, at this point. And so I wonder if there is something that we haven't quite put together yet about the way that the post- voice of Rao reorganizing of the guild system changes their names and that we may revert back to that if and when because obviously we know historically speaking that this kind of theocracy is not the world that Jor-El lived in. Yes, and if you look at the IMDB page which is a, a good way to go about it since I don't have access to multiple episodes at this point, we do have characters like DevM Quicksoul Jack Zor, mm-hmm. and th- those are all credited in this episode. Yes, Dev M is uh, Light as Odds Intended, the one that right. she's going to marry. Uh, he's the other African-American youth who's part of the Sagittarii. He's the one who says that they should do the hand-to-hand and c- instead yes. of with weapons. Right. Yes. And he shoots uh, at Seg in the streets. But we apparently have a, a quick soul Yes. Yes, he which, is which, which another... Which, as far as I know, was not in- introduced in the comics until uh, the post-crisis. Mm-mm. No, yeah. Quicksil was the one I that was not. released from the Phantom Zone and sacrificed himself uh, and uh, exposed himself to gold kryptonite, and so Superman That's got him a job right. at the Daily Planet. I did know that. Darn it. Okay. And Jack Zor, who's uh, a little bit more obvious for anybody who has followed. Yeah, uh, at least one of those two, and I can't remember which, the Jack Zor or Quexel, are also Sagittarii. Honestly, probably both of them are Sagittarii, just because we don't have that many ranked, gilded people who appear in the pilot. Uh, But uh, many of the familiar names that you know from... The, the comics, I believe, are going to end up being Sagittarii, which is this you know military guild that uh, Zod's grandmother runs. Which also becomes part of uh, wh- why we can begin to understand that Kryptonians live much longer than what we would normally expect for human beings. Because mm-hmm. Adam Strange says, oh yeah, it'll be several centuries or a couple of centuries, and you have a young Sagam, so... You you kind of have to assume that at least double. Well, they say in they say at the Genesis Chamber that the expected lifespan of of uh, Corvax would have been 174 years. 
Kryptonian years or Earth years? Yeah, crypt- I assume Kryptonian cycles. years because there were – yeah, cycles. That's right. Okay. But uh, so I, my guess is that the average lifespan on Krypton is between 150 and 200 cycles because they didn't seem particularly surprised, disappointed, confused that he would have lived 174 cycles. And so my guess is that cycles is roughly equivalent to years, at least in terms of the conversation that Adam Strange is having. Right. And so what we're looking at is essentially he has traveled back roughly the equivalent of one and a half Kryptonian lifespans-ish. Which makes sense when you really start to figure out that probably Seg won't have a kid immediately and Jor will have to have grown to be respected before he can send his kid off in a rocket. You had to be respected to send your kid off in a rocket because I was just going to do it anyway. Well, you know, uh, people respect him. Uh, Jeff, what what was your kind of what are your notes? What are the things that you really wanted to touch down on? I touched a lot of the things that I specifically wanted to mention already while we were talking about other stuff. Well, there are a number of things that I've actually already talked about that I sort of took notes about. Uh, one thing is that all of the moons around Krypton appear to be intact. So it wouldn't surprise me if at some point one of them was not. That's true, especially with DevM around. But oh. Yes, and, and actually, if you look at uh, the beginning of Man of Steel, there is, in fact, a moon in the sky that is already broken up. And so if that's the direction that they're trying to go, then there will at some point be a moon not entirely being intact. That's all I'm really going to say about that. I, I look forward to seeing who the voice of Rao will turn out to be because I wonder if that has anything to do with Brainiac. There are two schools of thought on Brainiac. One is that he's an outside force. One is that he's the inside force that was introduced in the animated series in the mid-90s. And I'm curious to see if they're going to go with one or both of those to see who Rao's going to turn out to be. Or or rather, the voice of Rao, who's in that many-faced golden uh, sigil that we're taking a look at. Yeah, I do wonder if Van if uh, Van L is it Van L or Val L? Val L is the one Val- who is the grandfather. Okay, I wonder if Val L survived his fall and if we're gonna see him again. Since these Kryptonians, <laughs> he's can... surviving beyond the wall. <laughs> yeah, no, he very well may. And yeah, it could turn into that sort of a situation. Who really knows? Doomsday came from Krypton. That's something that we found out in the Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey miniseries, uh, the prestige format, from about a year and a half after the death of Superman. So when we finally found out about Doomsday, it turned out that he was from Krypton, from the wastelands, from a long time before Superman was ever born, like way longer than we're looking at now. So Who's to say if there is if there aren't creatures like that somewhere out there that could become part of the story? Uh, that's entirely possible. But I'm going to go, go ahead and just continue on with some of my notes about the episode. Um, I like how all the L's are rebels. And in this case, they're all part of Black Zero. Black Zero is something that has been around in Krypton for quite a while. The earliest that I can think of it. Were they around in the 1978 uh, Miniseries, Michael? Black Zero was a character 
that was in a issue of Superman in the early 200s, uh, okay. who was somewhat responsible for the destruction of Krypton. It's a great cover of Superman about to punch this guy. And they uh, eventually took that name for the terrorist group in the post-crisis universe. Awesome. I didn't I, even know that. That's why I always refer to Michael whenever I have a question like that. I believe, too, that at one point in the pre-crisis that it actually – and maybe I'm misremembering this. But at one point there was a group uh, – there was a group of, of terrorists slash military slash something – that was essentially an army of bizarro clones working for Zod, and I, I, yes. I, I could have sworn those were also called Black Zero. That that, that, that sounds uh, that very was Zod's first appearance too. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. That was, that was Zod's first appearance, and the first description we get about it is he tried to take over Krypton with a bunch yeah, of yeah. About clones. that because I remember it was part of the speculation for Batman v Superman because. The... Oh, you mean Zod Zaro? Yeah, Zod's day. Exactly. Yeah, that that was one of my issues, one of many issues to do with Batman vs. Superman. Um, I loved Man of Steel. I thought Batman vs. Superman really, really dropped the ball. Even though I enjoyed it, I have watched it several times. I will be watching it again. But uh, there are a lot of ways in which Batman vs. Superman just really did not quite get it. Let's, uh, and, let's not, let's, let's, we don't have to dwell on that, right? Okay. Yeah, fair, I feel like it's fair good. enough. Instead, let's talk about how poorly the combat is done in this episode. It's not even good stage combat, and I will forgive it because it they went ahead and put it on the Sci-Fi Network, and they've they did even worse on NBC with the Inhumans series. Which I knew was doomed to failure, but you know what? If Inhumans had been on the Sci-Fi Network, they might have done well, even if they didn't have properly fitting costumes, which I they like barely had here. For me, I mean, I, I noticed that the the combat in the show was a little stiff, uh, but I, I didn't. It didn't bother me largely because most of the combat, not most of, but a lot of the combat we saw here was involving the Sagittarii, who clearly were being taught kind of a. These, this kind of weird traditional martial arts thing that, that you saw exhibited with uh, Jaina and Lyda in the, at the beginning. And so to me, I, I, I just kind of took that at face value as these are people who are fighting in this kind of traditional style. And sometimes that does not look good because you we're, we're more used as audience to seeing kind of a more contemporary brawling style, and certainly you see bits of that in here. Uh, I will say whether that was an intentional choice or not, I'm not sure, but I do feel like the, the combat gets better as the show, as the next few episodes progress. So it's entirely possible that <laughs> that wasn't a conscious choice, and I'm giving them credit. Well, but as, as, since as, I like as, the show, I'll do that. Okay. <laughs> As somebody who does stage combat and who has stu- has taught stage combat many times, this was uh, essentially stage combat done with weapons without weapons. So it was really, really overdone, in my personal opinion, and it felt very, very forced. Basically, they were doing sword combat with their arms, if that 
makes any sense whatsoever. And I was able to not only pick that out, but really just say, wow, I can't believe that they were able to get away with this. Maybe it's one of those things where if it's something you have experience in, it stands out more. I mean, I've done martial arts training a little bit when I was when I was a teenager, but um, just this, the fighting, it looked a slight bit stiff, but it looked pretty much fine. This is not a fighting show. This is a no, no, and and, and and I understand that. Uh, one of the times when I taught stage combat, I went ahead and showed the uh, fight between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader at the end of Empire Strikes Back to be able to show, look, this is what I was teaching you. And they were, they were able to say, whoa, that's exactly what you were teaching us, whereas it's mm-hmm. very different by the time you get to Return of the Jedi. But even though they had the exact same trainer who does movie combat, but that was what they were going for at that time, and I just don't buy it here. It all had to do with poorly executed stage combat with the proper cuts at the right times. That's what it looked like to me. I I especially like that it is Adam Strange. I, I just want to throw throw that out there. I love that it's Adam Strange because if if you're going to bring something back to Superman on Earth, it should be a human being coming to Krypton to be able to impart this information. And Adam Strange is a human being who's been who's gone through all this stuff. You know, the Zeta beam, the uh, costume that he has to put on, not not costume, the the uniform that fits to him and, you know, is able to do all the things that it does. And I'm going to go ahead and assume that there's some other kind of technology that we're not seeing that makes it so that Adam Strange is not crushed by Krypton's gravity. He has Jimmy Olsen's gravity boots. Okay. Hmm. It's it's hidden in the, the Detroit Tigers cap, <laughs> which actually I, I think was one of my favorite lines in the episode was when – uh, he asked him, is that a guild? And you know, Sean it, it's, says, that was a great moment. I thought it was funny, too, because the moment I saw the, 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 the hat, I'm like, at some point, someone's going to mistake that for a guild. Yeah. Uh, so I, had, and I, think, I think that's the Jeff Johns guild, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, when they first showed him way in the background, I thought, oh, wow, they really didn't do any work on these costumes. That's actually... He's in a hoodie with a cap on. That's what I was going to say, is that the, the first time I watched this, because uh, if you remember the shot, it like pans up from the ground. And so the first thing you see of him is his Converse All-Stars. And <laughs> the first thought that I had was, wait, somebody's wearing Converse All-Stars on Krypton? And then by the time I finished that thought, they had gotten up to the Detroit Tigers hat, and I was like, oh, it's Adam Strange. Okay. But... <laughs> but there, I had that moment of like, wait, what? Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> he should have been wearing Skechers. Kryptonians need to buy American. That's true. I, okay. I, I, I feel like probably Kryptonians have very little interest in our sneakers, although, I mean, who knows? It's it's. It'll be interesting to see how his... I, I want to see what happens with his smoking habit, because he's just lighting up on an alien world where he has no idea if he's going to blow something up. Uh Walk softly with good sneakers and carry a giant sunstone. <laughs> uh, I, I am. It's funny because the way he 
kind of presents himself and this idea that like he's he's kind of a big deal and Superman handpicked him for this mission. I I can't help but feel like there's something he's not telling us. Like this doesn't like he doesn't feel like the version of Adam Strange who is far enough developed that Superman is going to handpick him for a life and death of the universe mission. And so I'm I'm curious to see if we'll get to some kind of hidden story of like how this ended up being his gig. Yeah, and I'm I'm really looking forward to that because if if I look back into all the different versions of Superman, if there was one person that I would give this information to, it would be Wave Rider. Yeah. But who would, who would care about that? Wave Rider. Rider's not part of the current story in any way whatsoever. So if you're going to give it to somebody else in the DC Universe, I want it to be, number one, somebody who's spacefaring, but it needs to be somebody who's human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are some other choices. I mean, certainly I feel like there's elements of Booster Gold in the way that Sipos presents Adam Strange here. Uh, obviously, there's also elements of Booster Gold in pretty much every time traveling hero on TV because everybody has to be snarky now. So I might just be reading that in as a big Booster Gold fan and not... And you want to be careful not to cross it over with, uh, um, uh, what's it called, Tomorrow? Legends, Legends of Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah, that was my joke about the Wave Rider being a ship now. Oh, okay. Uh, but, yeah, it, I mean, the, the big thing is even Legends can't use Booster because Booster is ostensibly getting a movie at some point, which we'll see. Certainly the fact that Sci-Fi was developing a Booster Gold TV show four years ago, and now we get a version of Adam Strange who travels through time and cracks wise, uh, almost kind of feels like they took – elements of stuff that they didn't use from the previous attempt and dropped it into Krypton. But again, that's, that's like me knowing way more than the average viewer is ever going to know or care about and applying like assumptions that might not be true. Yeah, and there were still some uh, some guest stars that I'd really like to see. Yeah, I'm curious to see what, if anything, we get out of that. Uh, I mean, the at one point, the showrunner did say that because this is set in space and it's set hundreds of years ago, that you could plausibly see you know, a version of the Dark Stars or the Omega Man or the Green Lanterns or something like that, and it wouldn't, in theory at least, run afoul of the movies or the other TV shows because they're hundreds of years ago and it's not going to be the versions that we know. I'd like to see some kid randomly show up and have, have uh, Segel be like, who the hell are you supposed to be? And I'm like, Sorry, my name's Ilya Selkind. Uh-huh. Um, All right. Any just a couple yeah, of little, little things I'd written down. Um, I liked it. The grandpa at the beginning, uh, Valel, was essentially dressed as Superman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you were to describe, I mean, he doesn't look like Superman, but if you were to describe his suit, the description would sound like Superman's suit. Yeah. Um. Lily liked that we were getting the seedy side of Krypton, that we, we open up with Seg in a seedy bar rather than, like, the halls of science that we usually see. Yeah, that's, I think, the, the biggest thing that is going to give this show kind of a different... Like, this this show doesn't feel like, you know, even just say Legends of Tomorrow because they're on a gleaming metallic spaceship that's blah, blah, blah. Like, this this show feels like The Hundred everything is kind of grimy and all the clothes are improvised. And, and I do like the fact that because we've seen the same like 
small section of Krypton dozens of times. Uh, there's something appealing about going, oh, there's actually more going on in this world. Yeah, it's not the Airsats uh, probable... It, it, it's not the, the Krypton that you would know from the comics of the Silver Age or even the, the um, Burn Age that Michael and I usually talk about. This is very much the one where things are so far from appearing to be perfect because it's all about appearances anyway. So things don't even appear to be perfect here. We have the uh, multi-leveled quality going on, which we don't see visually a whole lot, but we hear referred to in the dialogue where the better levels of society are vertically higher. And down here on the ground level, we have kind of the slums and, and the bars and the, the unranked and ungilded people, which I guess is probably a trope in some in, in civilizations like this, but... I've been reading a lot of Magnus Robot Fighter, which which uses that idea as well, so it reminded me of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I laughed whenever they mentioned that Val had a fortress. Because the idea that Superman's ancestor would also have a fortress of solitude is so comics. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I actually... felt the same way. It feels I, a little ridiculous in a pseudo-realistic storytelling, but it is such a comics idea. I, I agree completely. I will say, like having seen more of the fortress both in person and, and in the future episodes, I, I love that it's there. Uh, it gives a kind of a visually dynamic thing. It allows him – like this is one of those situations where the, the literal solitude is important because obviously he's doing work that is forbidden – uh, on a world that will kill you for doing pretty much anything. And so uh, I, I I like the way that they execute it. I do think it's it's like one of those things where when you say the idea, you're just like, oh, okay, whatever. But again, there's a lot of things on this show that when you tell me the idea, I groan. But the execution is fine, and so I'm, I'm, I'm good with it. And uh, the only other thing I really wrote down that we haven't already talked about is... When both of his parents get shot right in front of him, and he's like right above their two bodies, splayed beneath him, I just I got a very Bruce Wayne vibe about the visual shot choices they made there. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I, sure I, I it, have a thought it was about accidental, that. but um, I said I have a thought about that that I have in my notes. So yeah, what's that? <clears throat> well. Um, for me, the the things I liked about this show specifically uh, were I like we have a Superman related show where a main character is told that there is a secret about him that he needs to be shown. He has shown this and it unfolds his destiny before him. And before he can really embark upon that destiny, his parents must die. Mm-hmm. All of this is very Superman. That and doesn't kinda, sound like anything I've ever heard of before. And and I kind of like that it's it's a thematic thing. Like, Goyer wrote a pilot to a Superman show that uses a lot of the tropes of a Superman origin story, but just kicked it back a couple generations. 
and I, I like, I loved that Val had his own Fortress of Solitude because what I was afraid of whenever they referenced the Fortress of Solitude is somehow Adam Strange was bringing Sedge forward in time and showing him Superman's Fortress. So mm. I was glad that, oh, good, thank God, I would have been really annoyed with that because they have the big statues in the background yeah, yeah. Uh, and all that. I'm working on one of my own parents holding up a comic box, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm running out of funding. I may like do a GoFundMe on that. Uh, but I liked, I actually liked the hand-to-hand combat in this. I liked that it was very different um, because it, it struck me as a society that has a specific way of fighting and they're trying to show that. Uh, so I, I kind of see where Jeff's coming from, but it didn't bug me at all. I liked that Sidge and Zod have a thing going on the side and that both of them are completely aware of the fact that their lives are going in different directions. Mm-hmm. There is no, we're going to get, a, we're going to get away from this Johnny. You know, yeah. it's, it's all, it's all like we're doing this because we want to do this, but we know our fates are not, to be together, so let's just enjoy the time we have together, which is mm-hmm. uh, which is very now thinking for a society that is all about the future. Uh, I, I like that when we're introduced to Sedge, he <coughs> is basically scamming people, and this is how he makes money for his family. Mm-hmm. And that was just like like what happens after you are ungilded. Well. One, you become uh, apparently a butler. So, in addition to being Thomas Wayne, I guess his father was also Alfred. <laughs> uh, well, they, well, they do like to butle. Uh, but I just I liked that they spent most of the pilot just introducing us to the characters. Like we know the overall story. They had a great reveal of Brainiac at the end. You know, the Adam Strange thing popped in and out of this, but it was mainly just. You can kind of see where their original concept is still there. Like his parents dying and him being part of a revolution was kind of part mm-hmm. of what I remember of the original concept of the pilot or of the show. But now they've added this other thing, and instead of it feeling like tacked on, it actually feels really organic to the whole plot. Like not only are we is he having to deal with Brainiac. But he's also having to deal with the fact that his parents were murdered in front of him, and he needs to restore the House of L. And that makes for an exciting show, because then you can have the Brainiac thing play out in the first season, and then the whole getting the House of L back in the second season, and then people are on board with it because you've gotten them invested through the Brainiac story. Uh, but no, I was, I was very impressed with this show. Uh, it did not feel like a typical sci-fi show that I've seen. Uh, sci-fi is in the channel, not the right. genre. And I just think that the marketing of this thing has been brilliant. And I'm I'm hooked. I, I really am. I'm I, I am there every week. Uh, it's on the DVR. Uh, my wife is very excited to see it, which is always nice. And I just am glad that I live in an era where. I have two Superman-related live-action shows on at the same time, basically. If only they had done this with Highlander 5. <laughs> you know, I, I think we recall a podcast about Highlander. 
The only other thing I have I've never I've heard, heard of such a thing. was um, <laughs> the the cape. I really like that they pull the cape out as a symbol of you know this is Superman, this is who you stand for, this is what mm-hmm. we're trying to save. But then turning that into a Back to the Future, like yes, countdown, like like whatever you want to call that, the whole thing where you're going to fade out if you don't do it. They it's. I don't like that trope. My daughter complained about it as well. Oh. I don't know. See, to, to me, it feels very much like what we were talking about before in terms of it's something that when you say it out loud, it sounds dopey. But watching it in execution, to me, it just felt so comic book that I'm like, eh, I'll let it pass. Yeah, it's setting up a countdown more than anything else. Something that will be probably taken care of by the end of the first season so that then they can move on to the next thing, which may still be related and I will say, too, that uh, just the show is not unself-aware. When we were on the set visit, you know, back in December, he expl- he explained that to us because we'd only seen the first uh, 27 minutes. It, our, the, the cut of the episode we'd seen at that point ended when they got to the fortress. And so the cape had not yet made its appearance. And the showrunner came in and when he explained to us what the cape was and why it was there, he referred to it as our back to the future photo. (laughs) That's great. That's awesome. However, if, if that is like the big thing for the entire series, if, if however many seasons they're trying to go, if they're trying to make that last through the end of the series, that's too much. If they can make it last through the end of the season, I am cool with that. And then they need to move on to a different idea. And they can then harken back to Superman in some way if they want to. But if they're trying to spread that out over five, ten episode seasons, that's entirely too much to try and get that just from the pilot. Yeah, I don't think that'll be the case, honestly. I, I, mean, I don't think again, so they, either. They didn't say anything specific to that, but right. I do think my my guess would be that Assuming the show gets a second season, which I think I think it will, because I think that realistically, the brand has enough appeal that when you're looking at something on 10 p.m. on Sci-Fi, their expectations cannot be spectacularly high. So I don't know a scenario where this brand doesn't have enough appeal to get them a second season just by blowing away those expectations. Uh, but in any event, if they get a second season, my guess would be that it will be a lot less directly tied to Superman, and that. Superman is the hook to tell you, hey, look, there's more to this world. You should be interested in these people. And then once you are emotionally invested in the people on Krypton, it becomes, okay, well, we don't have to have Superman all the time. Right. And his story and, and not just a prelude to his story. Yes. Right. And, and again, if they want to revisit the Superman side of things when they get towards the end of whatever series they, they want to have, however, however many seasons they want to have, I think that's also a really good idea. Um, they can revisit in a, in a different way. They probably will. Again, I'm really glad that this is not on a network as opposed to something like the Sci-Fi Channel, because this would not survive. This wouldn't even 
they wouldn't even air the pilot if this was on NBC or CBS or or ABC. And the fact that we get to watch it on something really cool like the Sci-Fi Channel, I hope gives us the the opportunity to see a fully fledged series based on this world. But I'm still iffy about whether or not that's something that can happen. All right. Any final thoughts before I? Uh... All right. Well, why don't we go around the table, uh, start in the same direction that you guys introduced yourselves, and tell people where they can find you on ye olde internet. Um, so my name is John Wilson. I am on Twitter under at John Reads Comics. There is no H in any of that. Um, this is going. Uh, about a week from now, I'm going to be dropping the trailer for a podcast that I am launching, a Marvel podcast called Make Ours Marvel that I've been working on for a while. So um, if you like 1960s Marvel comics, drop me a follow over on Twitter and uh, keep an eye out for that around March 27th. And my name is Jeffrey Taylor. Um, I have in the past worked on a number of things. I'm taking a break in a lot of ways. So the biggest way that you can find me right now is the exact same way that Michael Bailey is about to tell you about on the top of the number of things that he is now working and constantly working on. Uh, my name is Michael Bailey. I host a number of shows through something I call uh, the Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network, which you can find at fortressofbaileytude.com. One of those shows is From Crisis to Crisis, Superman podcast, which I do with Jeffrey, where we talk about the post-crisis adventures of Superman about one half month at a time. Uh, I also do a show called It All Comes Back to Superman, which is uh, my monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith. Hail Rao. Uh, and I have a couple. I have a Batman show. I have a thing called Views from the Long Box. It's all at FortressOfBailey2.com. Uh, there's like over basically over 600 episodes of various shows that you can choose from. And I, as you probably know, I'm Russ Burlingame. You can follow me at Russ Burlingame. R U S S B U R L I N G A M E. That's really long, and I'm not going to repeat it. And uh, that pretty much will lead you to all of the stuff that I do, the Emerald City Video Podcast and working for comicbook.com and all that fancy stuff. So thank you, all you gentlemen, for, for joining me. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I always forget how much fun it is to talk with folks that you don't get to – because like I said, my, my other podcast, it's like I've been working on talking about Riverdale with the same two guys for the last year and a half, and it's like – Oh yeah, when you get that shot of new blood, it's sometimes really exciting. <laughs> yeah, because clearly, from what you're telling us, they're a bunch of jerks, white people. I tell you. Ah. But uh, thank you guys very much, and uh, for everybody uh, who's listening to this, you should like, share, and subscribe to you know this show, and also to the shows of these fine gentlemen here. And I will put all that information in the show notes to the best of my ability. And uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back. Well, at least I'll be back, and any of these guys who wants to join me uh, a week from now to talk about another episode of Krypton. Uh, stay safe. Save!